Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to Film Chat, a podcast all about a 35-year-old man who still lives with his parents. His name, Sam Foster. Sam's parents are worried about him. They want him to move out and start a new life by himself. So they enlist the help of me, Dan Moran. I'm some kind of self-proclaimed expert in these matters, and I've helped other parents out in similar situations. My theory is that men don't want to leave the nest due to low self-esteem. So to combat this, I establish a relationship with the man in question, build his confidence, and transfer his attachment from his parents onto me. However, I find Sam doesn't have any self-esteem issues at all. He's actually very charming and confident, and before I know it, I fucked him. It's what I would be saying if this was a pod adaptation of the 2006 Sarah Jessica Parker Matthew McConaughey rom-com Failure to Launch. This is in fact just a podcast where we talk about and review films. I'm Dan Moran, and joining me is my lazy, affable, sun-worshipping slacker hunk, Sam Foster. Hey. On today's episode of Film Chat, two Oscar contenders go head to award garlanded head on the biggest stage of all. This obscure podcast. Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara star in the lush romance Carol. Two women separated by age and class, brought together by the fact that they're both miserable as shit. Meanwhile, Tom Hanks puts on the overcoat of self-effacing virtue and the Borsalino hat of wholesome American industriousness to do some Cold War negotiating in Spielberg's latest Bridge of Spies. The professional critics love every fiber of the exquisite period costumes and every plonk and swoop of the piano and strings heavy scores. But what about the people who really matter? Two guys sitting in a bedroom. Find out in a bit. Plus, sexy young men fight to the death to become the next Han Solo. A Turkish man's freedom hangs by a thread as a court decides once and for all whether Gollum is a baddie. And we examine the top 20 films of the year as determined by a panel of 168 international film ponces. Finally, I stage my one-man version of Doctor Zhivago in the style of Crispin Glover doing These Boots Are Made For Walking. Twice as exciting as the original because of its sheer drooling passion. I think this is the one they'll remember me for. It's going to be great. I don't know what that means, but <laughs> but I want to live up to it. Are you 
feeling comfortable. Film chat has begun. So, we didn't do that much on the film chat Facebook page this week. I had busy things to do. I got a life to live, you know. I was campaigning against the bombing in Syria. Yeah. I mean, that's not quite as important as the podcast, but it's still very important. Yeah. I was doing lots of things like not getting uh, ready for Christmas, things like that. Oh, dear. And... This time it's beginning to feel a lot like Christmas. It is, yes, unfortunately. It's less than a week into December, so I feel like it's not yet at panic stations. Anyway, it's not really got anything to do with the normal topic of the podcast. But I did publish something about Sight and Sound's Top 20 Films of the Year. They consulted a lot of um, film experts across the globe, 168 of them. The bloody critics. The bloody critics. The people that we despise, we have utter contempt for. They're professionals, and they get paid to do what they do, and we don't. Yeah. Which is, if anything, evidence of how hollow their profession is. It's bullshit. The integrity is on the blogs and on the podcasts. So um, they've declared the 20 best films of the year, according to these critics, whoever they are. Nameless bunch. I mean, it could be anyone. (laughs) Uh, What did you think of the list, Danny? Well... You pointed out two things wrong with this list. First of all, like about five of the films haven't come out yet, which yeah. seems like it feels like this was a list for them and their mates, and they published it in a major magazine. Yeah, it does um, feel about that. As I, as I pointed this out on Facebook, but the number one film is The Assassin, which is getting its UK release date on January 2016. I mean, obviously, it's hard to work out exactly what constitutes a 2015 film, but I would say that UK cinema release date it should be a pretty good. Absolutely, way to go. And, uh, yeah, so that was a bit annoying. And I imagine there's some crossover with the um, titles picked with some of our films of the year, mm. which we will do on our special Christmas New Year's edition, I imagine. Yeah, that we'll probably do. But Inside Out at 14, come on, Side of Sound. Mm. Come I mean, on. And it's tied at 14 with five other films. Well, four other films. There's a five-way title. It's tied with Hard to Be a God. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> I didn't think, like, on the whole, I didn't think it was a terrible list. 45 Years struck me as a bit of an odd one. 45 Years is a bit of an odd one. And I've not seen it, but judging by your sort of... Yeah, assuming that my review was absolutely accurate. No, I I thought 45 Years was quite good, but I I definitely wouldn't describe it as the seventh best film of the year. But I guess maybe it's sort of quiet middle-class misery is the sort of thing that critics love, you know? Like, the critics went nuts for Hidden, which is pretty much a film about how middle-class people are shit. It's that um that David Lee Roth quote where it's like um music journalists like Elvis Costello because music journalists look like Elvis Costello. Right. It's yeah. Like, <laughs> Some critics love like middle class years because they look like yeah, Tom exactly. Courtney. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think there's probably some truth to that. To be quite honest with you, but the ones that I've seen are all pretty good. Like there, there, there's no absolute clunkers in there. There's no ones where I'm like that film was a p- real piece of shit. I don't know why 168 <laughs> film critics loved it. So it might actually be quite a good kind of guideline for other movies to seek out. I don't know what this film is, Son of Saul, with someone who looks like Jamie Bell in it. But, <laughs> but if it's the eighth best film of the year, you know. On this matter, Kyle got in touch with us. Remember Kyle? Mm. Where have you been, Kyle? Yeah. Haven't been around for a while. Kyle on film. Um, he said, I thought the same about the release dates and found that quite a few of them won't arrive on our shores until 2016. This is more of a critics list than one for the readers, but then it does flag up some very intriguing films that I will check out come the new year. And he also backed up my inside out being a 14 bullshit claim, saying your BS claim is well founded. Couldn't bring himself to say bullshit. He's a very well mannered man. Mm. He's very polite. Extraordinarily polite. 
on the point of so many of the films being tied in one position, Kyle says, are the ties not a subtle middle finger to the kind of clickbait lists that imply that one film is empirically better than another? Just a thought. It could just be laziness. I don't think so, because that's sort of, you know, why do a list in the first place, then? I don't think so. It's probably, it's probably just an outcome of having... Uh asked a bunch of different critics for their top lists and then they sort of assign a numerical value to them and then some of them have the same score. Yeah. But it is a bit surprising to have a five-way tie. Absolutely. I, if it was a subtle middle finger to the notion of lists, like some kind of anti-list, what they really should have done is had a 20-way tie for number one. <laughs> Absolutely. And that would have been cool. That would have been good. Uh, Todd James Phillips wrote in to say, none of you mentioned the fact that Carol is a poop fest and they have it at number two. Strong words from Todd. Poop fest. A fest of poop, I enjoy to Todd. Todd's maverick opinions he throws in every once in a while that we always disagree with, but I really enjoy them. Well, that's good. That's we good. don't want opinions that we only agree We with. don't want to sort of self-congratulately, you know, yeah. whatever that word was I just said, <laughs> circle jerk. No, we don't. That was our old blog. This is film chat. <laughs> yeah, I want to hear more from Todd about why he thinks that Carol's a festival why of poop. Why do you a poop face? Poop fest? Why, why are you calling us a poop face for, for liking Carol? And a uh, final bit of correspondence. Georgia Mills chimed in with, It Follows was good, but for a horror film, dot, 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 which was also ranked very high. No, I was kind of surprised, actually, to see It Follows in there so highly. Um, yeah. But it's kind of a cool choice. I mean, it I don't know if cool it really choice. is one of the like absolute best films of the year, but it's a cool thing for them to have absolutely loved. Yeah. A lot of people nostalgic for John Carpenter movies. Exactly. So... Thanks for all your comments. Keep them coming. Keep them coming. Keep them coming. Superhero films announced. Casting rumours leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated. Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated. Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped. Matt Damon's in a viral vid. Michael Bay's made a mint. That's the news that's fit to print. So, uh, regular listeners to Film Chat will remember we discussed Phil Lord and Chris Miller, the directors of the 21 Jump Street franchise and Ooh. the Lego movie, are going to write and direct the Han Solo spin-off movie, which is scheduled to be released in January 2017. Yeah. And unlike the J.J. Abrams route of casting unknowns or relatively newcomers, uh, everyone in the world who is a bit famous, is auditioning to play Han Solo. It's like a sort of open casting call, but for famous people only. Yeah, and it makes for a hilarious news story because all these actors are completely different, <laughs> different ages, in some cases different races, and they're all auditioning to be Harrison Ford's younger self, I guess. So, uh, shall I throw, I'm going to throw some names at you. Just yeah. give me a yes or no on possible Han Solo. Yeah, sure. Dave Franco. No, I don't like that one. Aaron Taylor Johnson. Absolutely not. Miles Teller. Um, I don't think he, I don't know if he's like as traditionally handsome enough. He's but like I do, quite pudgy face. But I do quite like him. So maybe. Uh, Logan Lerman. Who's that? Percy Jackson from Percy Jackson and Lightning Thief. <sighs> I don't know really. His best role. Hard to take him that seriously as an actor. I don't know. If that's Ansel cool, but... Elgort. You know the guy from Fall Fallen Our Stars. Who's going to be in Baby Driver? Yeah, I don't know him well enough. I haven't seen him. He's quite baby-faced. Is he? Maybe that's why they cast him. Baby Ford. <laughs> yeah, but you know, you've know, got to be chiselled to be... He's a handsome dude, right? Handsome, mm, right? Too baby, too much of a baby. Um, <laughs> Tom Felton? Tom Felton? Draco Malfoy himself? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's pro that's got to be an outside choice. I don't know what the betting I, odds are I haven't are seen on. him in a movie since he was just Draco Malfoy, but... 
bullying apes instead of instead humans. Instead of uh, wizards. <laughs> in uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, which is like four years ago. I hope he's okay. I hope he's all right. Well, he's got to be, you know, at least somewhat okay to be auditioning for this role. Can't Absolutely. be, like, terribly injured or something. And uh, Rami Malek from Mr. Robot. I don't think that that's an odd one. He's a 32-year-old Egyptian <laughs> man. He's a 32-year-old. Yeah. I mean, he looks young. Yeah, he looks really But Harrison Ford was like more like 32 yeah. when he did the first Star Wars. So you got to be Yeah. But he also looks like a sort of sexy version of the frog monster from that Harry Potter episode of the Simpsons. I mean, he's clearly He's got this bizarre like bug-eyed sort of appearance. Yeah, I think he's kind of like hot though. Uncanny Valley hot. Ramy. Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, he's not not attractive, but I don't think he's a matinee Too Harris, negative Harrison Ford positive. as um, sort of sexy hero. You're right. I have, to, I have to say that despite that seemingly being every, you know, young, attractive man going at the moment, I, I don't know, none of them kind of grab me as Harrison Ford. I think that the most charismatic one out of those is probably Miles Teller. But even he is a bit just like uh, your kind of fun friend you know yeah he's the rom-com buddy right he's not the lead yeah i mean he 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 put in quite an intense role in whiplash and everything but even then it was more like teen angst than it you know yeah absolutely i don't know maybe that's dismissing his i mean he's a very good actor and everything like that but i just not sure i see him as um the uh the kind of super cool space adventurer it's it's uh aren't they all a bit young as well like oh, well it's a prequel right it's a prequel yeah okay. <laughs> that's a stupid comment <laughs> I've had a glass of wine, guys. It's um, it does feel like impossibly big shoes to fill, mm. especially because it's not like a character that existed before Harrison Ford. It's not like your interpretation. It's like you just have to be Harrison Ford, surely. Absolutely, yeah. It's not like doing Bond, where it's like everyone does their own thing. Yeah, and it's hard. I literally, I was thinking about, oh, who would I cast? And I was like, I cannot think of it, a single person. I don't know. In if the there current, is, there is no real kind of equivalent. I to think Harrison they, should, Ford. they need to find the young Harrison Ford out there. Surely they've got to find a. Well, the last person to play to play the closest thing to young Harrison Ford was Sheila Burf in um, Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls, and I don't know if the general consensus on that is that it you know he knocked it out of the park. Just do it. Press the hyperdrive button or something. No, 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 no. If he was required to shout no a lot, he'd probably yeah. probably be quite good. Anyway, all those options don't, don't seem like the right guy. Not that great. No, I don't think they're that great. Maybe. Definitely not Dave Franco. Yeah, it would be a good, actually, a good hand solo. You. I'm looking at you right now. <laughs> and I've just realised the way you're sort of leaning back in your chair. It's like I'm Greedo, and you're about to kill me. Wow, you're man. That's, yeah. a, that's a very, that's a kind remark. Say one of his famous lines. Um, laugh, say laugh it up, fuzzball. I was, no, I was going to say, um, get me my falcon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll do the same. Things like that. I love you. I know. <laughs> That's uncanny. You sound like Harrison Ford, but 20 years younger. That's how a young Harrison Ford would have said it. You know, he's not really the same guy. He's been he's, through a lot. Yeah. The, one of the things that characterizes Han Solo in the prequels is he's a bit jaded. So younger Han Solo is going to be a little more open. Yeah. I know. Oh, the Force is probably definitely real. I haven't explored any of the galaxy yet. <laughs> oh, Force? That's got to be probably definitely real. That's going to be wicked. It's going to be like that, you know, that speech he gives in A New Hope. It's like, I've seen all the crazy stuff, kid. I've travelled one half a guess. It's like, <laughs> I haven't travelled halfway across this galaxy. I've barely seen any old shit. <laughs> it's just like... One day I'd like to make the Kessel run in under 12 parsecs or something. So, to conclude, can't really think of anyone who could fill those shoes. 
Yeah, to conclude, that is a very broad name. Uh, sorry, that's a very broad list of unsuitable people. Who do you think would be good as Han Solo listeners? Young Han Solo, write in and let us know. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I don't know let us know. International human rights news now. I was um, looking through my Twitter, as I want to do, and one of the people I follow on Twitter is George Monbiot. Um, who's an environmental campaigner and a kind of left-wing columnist. And uh, I don't normally turn to him for my film news, but he was tweeting about something that was going on in Turkey, which I thought was very interesting. Turkey has taken a turn towards the authoritarian, and the current president, whose name I'm not sure how to pronounce, but it's something like Recep Erdogan, um, has uh, really cracked down on dissidents and anyone who wants to criticise him. And the latest case of this is that someone uh, on Twitter posted some pictures of Erdogan and compared his facial expressions to those of Gollum from Lord of the Rings. Ooh. You remember Gollum, don't you, Danny? Ooh, not very flattering at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's a kind of skinny, um, creepy guy, isn't he? Yeah, the whole sort of goblin Part man. of the plot is that he's been... Um, his life was elongated by holding the one ring, but it's left him emaciated and corrupted and warped. Yeah. It's safe to say that he's not a very physically attractive character. That's the kind of comparison that could start a revolution. Absolutely. That's probably what this guy was thinking. He was like, time to bring down this government. Let's break out the Gollum picks. So, of course, that man was arrested. They can't let that happen. (laughs) 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 Because insulting the president is a crime in Turkey. So pathetic. And his trial his trial is currently ongoing. So Jesus. this guy's lawyers, um, he's a physician and civil servant apparently, and his lawyers were not able to argue um, on the basis of freedom of expression that he, he should be um, released or not convicted. And so instead they're having to argue that Gollum is not really an insulting comparison. No. So, um, because he's kind of an ambiguous character. The Guardian story on this put it's it in true. quite a good he's, way. He's, got, he's practically sort of schizophrenic, right? He's sort of... There's the, the Smeagol and Gollum. The Smeagol and Gollum, right? He's got the good side and his bad side, in the movies at least. So yeah. That's a kind of movie device. Uh, the original Guardian story on this puts this quite well. Gollum is known for his grotesque appearance, his split personality, eating raw fish and disliking rabbit stew and potatoes, but also for assisting the hobbits Frodo and Sam in their quest to reach Mount Doom to destroy the Ring of Power, thereby defeating the evil Lord Sauron and ushering in an era of peace in the fictional world of Middle-earth. So So, it's quite a good summary of um, the good points and bad points of Gollum. You could argue that he was comparing him to Erdogan in that he's a selfless man who would sacrifice his own life in order to bring peace to the world. Yeah. Or you could just say he was a creepy, weird-looking dude. And that's the sort of main message of it. power. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, And there's been an intervention just earlier today, or yesterday, which might tip the balance in favour of the guy on trial, uh, because Peter Jackson has waded into the debate. He's found out about this, and he has um, made a statement that 
the images that were posted on Twitter were not those of Gollum, but they were of Smeagol, the benign alter ego of Gollum. And the statement says, Smeagol is a joyful, sweet character. Smeagol does not lie, deceive, or attempt to manipulate others. He is not evil, conniving, or malicious. These personality traits belong to Gollum, who should never be confused with Smeagol. Smeagol would never dream of wielding power over those weaker than himself. He is not a bully. In fact, he's very lovable. Well, good on Peter Jackson. Good on Peter Jackson. Um, And I hope that that carries some weight in the Turkish court, although I don't, I mean, I'm not familiar with the intricacies of the law. That's so, like, uh, such a hilariously sort of pathetic despot move. I know. It's like... You have to be very insecure about um, yourself. What do you compare me to? And you hold up... Gollum! It's like, oh, the most cutting remark. It's not, you know... <laughs> yeah, there was some funny detail about this, that they had to, like, adjourn the trial for a while or something because the judge hadn't seen the movie, so he couldn't... <laughs> so he had to go could, watch... Uh, couldn't say. Two and three. I guess he had to go watch him. But yeah, um, hopefully we can follow up on that story in another episode yeah. of the podcast because I hope that guy gets off. Absolutely. Looks like Sam's got a film to review. He's just getting ready now. Hey Sam, here's a few tips for you that I hope are gonna help you out. You gotta come prepared, try not to rush. Speak directly into the mic. Um, don't sort of use filler words too much and try to avoid talking total shit. Okay, start reviewing now. So, Bridge of Spies is the latest Spielberg movie. People look forward to Spielberg's films a lot. He's a very highly regarded filmmaker, I hear. I've heard that. He's uh, generally considered to be quite good. He's made those great films. Uh, Always, Hook, <laughs> uh, Tintin, Secret of the Unicorn. Yeah. So, um, Spielberg's latest film, Bridge of Spies, is a Cold War thriller. Um, I don't know if thriller's probably putting it a bit strong. But it's a Cold War film, and it stars Tom Hanks. It's based on a true story about um, a guy called James Donovan, who's an insurance lawyer in the United States in the 1950s, and he was called upon to defend a Soviet spy who'd been caught in America, who in the film was played by Mark Rylance. And then various things happened. Then a bit later on in Tom Hanks' career, he is required to travel to Berlin and negotiate with the Soviets for the release of an American spy held in um, East Germany. Spy swap. Uh, yeah, spy swap for Mark Rylance, the Soviet spy. And uh, so here's a clip of, right at the beginning of the movie, Tom Hanks is being approached by some of his insurance colleagues with this surprising proposition. Let's have a listen. Okay, here's the thing. The Soviet spy they caught, we want you to defend him. Here's the indictment. Well, not sure I want to pick that up. The accused doesn't know any lawyers. The federal court tossed it into our lap. The bar committee took a vote. You're the unanimous choice. It was important to us, it's important to our country, Jim, that this man is seen as getting a fair shake. American justice will be on trial. Well, of course, when you put it that way, it's an honor to be asked, but Lynn, I'm an insurance lawyer. I haven't done criminal work in years. It's like riding a bike, isn't it? You distinguish yourself at Nuremberg. I was on the prosecution team. Not the point. You're no stranger to criminal law. Jim, look at the situation. The man is publicly reviled. And I will be, too. Yes, in more ignorant quarters. But that's exactly why this has to be done, and capably done. It can't look like our justice system tosses people on the ash heap. Ooh, smell of justice. Yeah, so my feelings about this film went on a very gradual but quite sort of steady decline from about halfway through 
to the end of the film and then like beyond the end of the film <laughs> as I continued to think about it. And they're probably at a low now. And then later on, I might reevaluate it and be like, actually, it wasn't that bad. But having thought about it later, there was quite a few things that bothered me about it. Um, but I'll try not to let them kind of, you know, overwhelm my review. It's quite a solid... It, it feels like a bit of a TV movie of the week kind of thing. Tom Hanks is doing a absolute classic Tom Hanks performance. You know, if you had to boil the essence of Tom Hanks down into one character, it would basically be this guy from this movie. Boy Scout. He's quiet. He's self-effacing. He's kind of modest. He is determined. He's smart. He is absolutely morally... Beyond question. Beyond question, exactly. And uh, he always does the right thing. And he's really American. There's, he's, a, he's from a particular breed of American hero, the kind of Mr. Smith goes to Washington type, who's just... He's not one of the fat cats. You know, he doesn't think a lot of himself, but he just wants to do the right thing, damn it. You yeah. Know? He has this way of uh, influencing more cynical, venal people to kind of work on his level. Yeah. You know? So in in the first part of the film when they're kind of setting everything up and getting him into East Berlin and stuff, that's all quite well done. And there's something quite reassuring about the Spielbergian style, which is off-imitated, but he just has this casual kind of competence to his movies. Absolutely, And the yeah. slickness to it. You know, I mean, it's... It's not... You don't see anything that's too surprising, but it's just well-made. It's just very, very well-made. And there's a particularly good opening sequence in which uh, Mark Rylance, who's the uh, alleged Soviet spy, is uh, being tracked by some FBI agents. And it's not... um, sort of overblown in its excitement he's a very sort of quiet man he just wanders about but it's just very nicely done and there's a lot of little nice moments in it um and that kind of thing and uh having tom hanks take on this case and um having to contend with the american justice system is the kind of most interesting part of the movie so they set it up as you heard in that clip basically he is being brought in to convince the world that this is not a show trial that they want to um, have a good defense so that they're doing... It's a show of um, the sense of American justice. You know, everyone gets a free trial. okay. But Tom Hanks is a very principled man, and he wants to do a better job than they really want him to do. So they kind of want it to actually be a sort of a show trial where it looks like he's getting great defense. A really good show trial. No one is really interested in actually getting this guy off the hook, you know? So that, that stuff is kind of interesting. And then in the second half of the movie, when it moves into the East Berlin stuff and the Soviet stuff takes over, the kind of conflict in the film then becomes between um, Tom Hanks as the American hero and a bunch of um, slippery uh, German and Russian characters. And there's something kind of intrinsically less interesting about that. And it feels like any promise of nuance or subtleties or moral uncertainties or gray areas are gradually eroded as the film goes on. And it ends in such a corny way that you're just kind of rolling your eyes. Or at least I was. Yeah. And there were several moments, particularly in the last 20 minutes, and maybe it's just because the stirring strings music has become a bit fatiguing by that point, and you're a bit like, yeah, 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 I get it. <laughs> um, but also because of the way that the story is wrapped up it no longer seems like a totally serious film. You feel like you've become a bit unmoored from reality and you've entered a movie world where there are no real consequences. Everything's right. kind of fine. 
I see. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Like, it's, it's not really, it's no longer really exploring um, anything important. It's just kind of wrapping everything up in the way that movies do, and that's not that satisfying. This is probably Mark Rylance's biggest uh, movie Biggest role. stage. Yeah. Yeah, Mark Rylance is really good in it, but he doesn't get that much to do. His character's a little bit one note. He's, he's absolutely brilliant at the beginning. But you kind of get the feeling that they'd settled on a cool thing for Mark Rylance to do, which is to be enigmatic and not say very much and be quietly dignified. Um, and after a while, you just wonder if this is actually a person at all, or just a kind of automaton. You know, he's yeah. more like a. He starts to seem like a um, character from a fun fair or something like that, where you just put a coin in him and he just sort of raises his eyebrows and looks a bit um, sorrowful and like Does wistful. It- is it, is it clear what the film's about? Is it, like, about a relationship, or is it about just the facts of the case? Or like... It's kind of... Um, I think it's about someone who is uh, sticking to their principles in the midst of a deeply cynical and unpleasant conflict in which people on all sides are willing to do anything to win. I think that's what it's kind of... Or at least that's what it should be about. That's what right. it's almost about. But part of the problem is that they leave you in absolutely no doubt that you should be siding with the Americans. Not just the American hero, but with the American side, completely. Um, And uh, that's also something which asserts itself much more fully in the second half of the film. Because the first half is like him versus other Americans. It's a shame. And and also it's... um, The Coen's brothers did a script polish on it, or they've got a co-writing credit. I don't know how much of the movie they wrote, but I didn't feel like it had a particularly amazing script. It wasn't like full of zingers. Um, there's a, it's quite good, but I don't know. There's a few lines that are really clunky. Like, there's a bit where a character says something like, uh, why did that guy go to study economics in Berlin in the middle of the Cold War? And it's like, you know, you don't know where you are in history. <laughs> like, <laughs> Four years into this eight-year war. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or have it on there. The Hundred Years' War has just begun. Yeah, 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 it's yeah, a bit yeah. like that. So, a bit of a... I think it was a, a bit, it was a bit meh. I think the end lets it down a lot. I think the first half hour is like perfectly serviceable and entertaining, and then the the cheesiness of the end just had me rolling my eyes quite a lot, dizzying myself. Oh dear! Yeah, nothing for women to do either. Amy Ryan has a very very traditional Hollywood wife did you, type did role. Fret? Did you fret? She frets. Her husband is too uh, committed to his job. He's not thinking of his family, blah, blah, oh, blah. No. You know, but she's really proud of him, you know, because he's, uh, he's a good guy. Yeah. Yeah. So, one to miss, maybe? Yeah, I don't think it's essential at all. Catch it on TV. Okay, I will. Ooh, time for a break from all the film chat. Have a cup of tea, maybe make a quick snack and telephone friends so you know where she's at. That's enough, now back to film chat. So, Carol, which has got a lot of critical love behind it, number two in the Sign Sound list. Yep. Todd thinks it's a poop fest. <laughs> Do we agree or not? Find out in a minute's time ish. So, to briefly go over the plot, this is uh, directed by Todd Haynes, the director of Far From Heaven, uh, I'm Not There, that Bob Dylan movie, and he helmed all of the Mildred's Pierce uh, miniseries for Ooh. HBO a couple of years ago, and it's adapted from Patricia Highsmith's novel The Price of Salts uh, by a screenwriter called Phyllis Nagy, or Nagy, and uh, Patricia Highsmith is the author of The Tad and Mr. Ripley and many thrillers, but this one was a semi-autobiographical, sorry, atypical work. Yeah, published under pseudonym, because it's yeah. a bit too racy. A bit too racy. So the film was set in the early 50s, and it's about 
Therese, who is working at a New York toy department store place. And uh, one day she serves Carol, played by Kate Blanchett, who is a rich socialite uh, type. It's not really clear what she does. I mean, she's like a housewife. And uh, mutual attraction blossoms, and they bring in a romance. And uh, this is a complicated issue for many reasons, obviously because homosexuality is illegal. And also because Carol is in the middle of a divorce from her husband, Harge, played by Carl Chandler, and she has a young daughter. Yeah, and the f- film is basically a romance drama, uh, which is a lot of mood and atmosphere. Here's a little clip of um, them on effectively what is their first date. So I'm sure you thought it was a man who sent you back your gloves. Mm. I did. Thought it might have been a man in the ski department. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I'm delighted. I doubt very much you would have gone to lunch with him. Oh, your perfume. Yes. It's nice. Thank you. Harge bought me a bottle years ago, before we were married, and I've been wearing it ever since. Harge is your husband? Mm-hmm. Well, technically, we, we're divorcing. I'm sorry. Don't be. And you live alone, Therese Balavet? I do. Well, there's Richard. He'd like to live with me. Oh, no, it's nothing like that. I mean, he'd like to marry me. I see. And would you like to marry him? Well, I barely even know what to order for lunch. So far be it for me to agree with the bloody critics, but I thought this was uh, excellent. I thought it was really brilliant for many, many reasons. Did you like it, Sam? I liked it, yes. I, I don't think it's a poop fest at all. No, I no. think it's a joy fest. <laughs> Still that joyful. What's the opposite of poo? <laughs> so I think it's brilliantly directed Food? by Todd Haynes. And at the beginning, uh, from that clip sort of indicates this very sort of slow, uh, methodical style. And uh, what's so clever about the direction and sort of effortless is the way that sort of slips away i think as the movie goes on and really mimics the relationship and as it blossoms the direction becomes a bit less obvious and you kind of forget about it and uh it has these two brilliant performances and he just gets out of the gas out of the way there's nothing fussy about it yeah that's true technically it's kind of brilliantly done the photography is amazing it's a hard thing to do period right i think it's like underrated as a skill and often certain period films can just look like obviously they've made these costumes yesterday mm. but it really seamlessly everything it looks like a used world and uh, i think the sort of 16 millimeter photography which is a little kind of soft and not as sharp you know not used to hd images uh really helps and the costume designing is really um well very authentic and also very clever like the first scene where they meet carol like she uh therese in this little santa's hat and she's wearing this big fur coat. And I want to read this sort of Tom and Lorenzo blog. Mm. She's a bit of a sort of predatory figure to begin with. And one of like, the really satisfying arcs of the movie is the way Kate Blanchard is presented as this sort of almost uh, aggressive, like pursuing Therese. And then as the movie goes on, you realise the sort of reverse is almost true. I mean, these movies, the film is kind of driven by these two performances. and They're, they're both, both absolutely brilliant. Yeah, they're, they're amazing. They're amazing, yeah. And I think they're also very canny bits of casting because they both, uh, Kate Blanche and Rudy Mora, uh, I would, they're sort of like old souls, you know, they've got a sort of quality to them. And I know Kate Blanche won 
an Oscar for playing Catherine Hepburn, but she's a sort of like old Hollywood leading lady type. Yeah. She's just got a look about her, which isn't at all modern. It's um, She's very glamorous. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, her screen persona is slightly um, authoritative. She's played a lot of queens and um, domineering. You know, she'd be a dame, right, you know, if she was English. And so... It's a clever bit of casting that that's how the character is presented, but obviously a big kind of theme of the movie is how people present themselves to the outside world. And it's nice to see her play something on the surface which looks very much in a kind of oeuvre, and yeah. it's actually the opposite. Yeah. And Rudy Mara has, in many ways, the harder task to do, but she's also absolutely brilliant, very enigmatic. I think uh, I think it's particularly good because that that kind of role that Rooney Mara is playing could so easily slip into cliche. She's a slightly self-regarding, uh, cool youngster, dresses like wears a lot of cool clothes in like fifties New York, and she wants to be a photographer. And uh, you can easily imagine how it could just be a kind of proto hipster, irritating. Yeah, role. absolutely. Yeah, but she invests it with um, I don't know. Just there's so much personality. Yeah, I also thought the supporting cast is also really strong. And what kind of makes this film... It's sort of like... It's kind of genius in its simplicity, but all the characters feel so rich and fully developed onto themselves. And Carl Chandler's role as Harge is... He's there for plot reasons to be the sort of antagonist, because he's like the sort of arsehole husband who doesn't like his lesbian wife. But he really comes across as more just frustrated and desperate. Yeah. And you can, though you don't agree with him, you completely understand his point of view. Well, he doesn't seem like a really bad man. Yeah. He's just, uh, he probably doesn't like the fact that it's, I mean, first of all, his wife had an affair, and plus it was with another woman, which, you know, in uh, that period would have been a bit of a moral outrage. So you can understand why he's a bit freaked out. But he's also, like, in love with her and wants her to stay with him and stuff. So, yeah, not, like, sort of terribly villainous. When I was thinking about it, there's this... Sorry to get a bit of film theory on you here, Sam. You know I'm the intelligentsic one. That's yes. a word. You know I'm the intelligentsic one. <laughs> um, but there's a really brilliant lecture Walter Murch did. Who He was the editor of The Godfather and Apocalypse Now, and he's pretty much invented sound design. Guy's like a legend. And he did this lecture talking about how films work, and he, I'm going to mangle his analogy here, but he describes it to a, a light bulb in that a light bulb consists of energy and a filament to make uh, a light bulb work. And he describes the energy as like the sort of big mass. It's like stupid. It doesn't know what to do. And the filament's like very precise. And he compares that to a cinema where the film is just a series of pictures and images and the audience is just a collection of human experience and the film is somewhere in between. And I think what makes Carol such a sort of rich, involving experience is that there's all these details about their lives and you just have to piece it all together in your head. Mm. So, like, most of the movie exists in your imagination and you don't. there's no, like, you know, flashback scenes. You just imagine what's happened, like, what it's like to be a lonely person where your sexuality is like forbidden and like there's there's literally like all these tiny little details and just all the lines are like loaded with so much subtext and meaning yeah the script is really excellent the script is brilliant that i I can understand like if you watch in a purely superficial level if you weren't into it it would be perhaps a poop fest as todd describes (laughs) it it would seem like quite a dull slow movie but if you tune into its frequency it just builds and builds to like an absolutely amazing ending yeah the ending is yeah, no, um, it's really, really good. Yeah. 
end of slightly pretentious film. Theory. No, no. I thought that, that really captured what was good about the movie, absolutely. Because it has a slightly enigma- enigmatic quality, the film, you don't really know what sort of relationship it is that they have because you're so used to romances from other movies that have a particular dynamic where there'll be the one who's a more dominant one, you know. It's like what you were saying earlier about the kind of predatory older woman and then the sort of... Um, young naive. The young naive one who's uh, influenced by her. Or is it a film about the kind of manipulative, beautiful ingenue who's taking advantage of the insecurities of an older woman who uh, sees herself as not as physically attractive as she once was, and that kind of thing. Um, and it's constantly slightly shifting the dynamics of power in their relationship. You're never quite sure how it's going to turn out. And you're also not sure whether you're headed towards a kind of traditional tragic ending where every character, you know, the whole thing explodes and every character ends up miserable or not. Or it's, it's never quite... Yeah, it feels the like film doesn't. It doesn't give all its cards... It doesn't sort of lay all its cards in front of you and says, like, this is the kind of film you're going to see. It's just a kind of procession of events that are done in a very careful, interesting way that are constantly leaving you wondering what's going to come next. It reminded me a bit of uh, one of the early episodes of Mad Men where nothing really happens in the story and it just kind of drifts along and it's got a lot of mood. Yeah. And But somehow it's got a lot of dramatic power as well, a lot of richness to the characters. I, I like the fact that you can have a dramatically powerful climax to a film without having to have a massive twist or without having to have constant um crazy things happening in the plot yeah so i yeah. think it's not a poop fest at all <laughs> yeah word of the week is definitely poop fest Omelette, omelette, wish the Alfie was my dad. Curly hair, fancy watch, brain located in my crotch. I'm a bloke, I'm a bloke, tell ironic sexist jokes. Like my lager extra strength, keep my cubes at perfect length. We didn't prepare anything for the end of the episode, listeners. We normally do, we normally got something great to do at the end, like a little song or something. Normally I can't think of anything and I just do sort of Luther song or something. I don't know, I'm, I still want to think of a good um, Harrison Ford um young version from amongst today's crop of men come on useless hollywood men of today man what the fuck happened you know what happened to this generation you know where are the real guys radcliffe no no <laughs> obviously not rupert grint yeah, yeah, rupert, yeah grint rupert grint is... actually that is actually a genius bit of casting who's the most enigmatic young because who's the Jack- rooney mara equivalent you know jack o'connell He's got charisma. He's the, one of the most interesting young actors. He's, he's got a lot of charisma. Board. I don't know. I mean, he'd have to really put in the performance of his life. <laughs> yeah. He'd have to really exercise the um, laddish... The derby accent. The der- <laughs> yeah. It bothers, me. it bothers me that I can't think of anyone good. Like, I'm a bit, like, irritated that there's no really young up-and-coming tool. What about that guy who's about to play Spider-Man? Oh, um, Asa Butterfield. No, 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 it's not it's him. It's oh. like Tom Holland. Always oh, yeah, he's sorry. <laughs> Tom Holland. I saw his dad at Richmond Park the other day. Now, this is <laughs> now, this is going to be it, okay? Casey, scrap everything that you've just heard, because this is going to be the final his segment of the podcast. His dad is a stand-up comedian called Dominic Holland, I think. Yeah. He's, you might have seen him on TV or whatever. Anyway, he was walking his dog. I was walking my dog. We passed each other, and I was like, oh, it's that guy. And uh, he just walked on past me. But then his dog was hanging out with Paddy, my dog. And then he had to, like, wait. And then we exchanged a few, like, 
Hey. 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 How's it going? Your son, Spider-Man? Your son, uh, son Spider-Man? on TV or like, what? Yeah. Be yeah. famous or what? So now I've got a role in, in the new Spider-Man film. Yeah? Yeah, he got me in. He got you in right I away. I saw an audition for him right there and there. I mean, I, without even realising it. I saw, I told like a really good anecdote with lots of characters and like doing different accents and playing different ages and stuff. I think the way to get a good role in a Spider-Man film, um, if you're just meeting someone randomly, is probably just to go, <gasps> you know, yeah. look at something going past you. <gasps> and I saw mimes and web shooters. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, but that's if you're, you're just for Spider-Man then. That role's been taken by his own son. Yeah, who should, who should if you I want really... to replace the guy who plays Spider-Man, the worst person to try to do that with is the father of the person who's already been cast. What was I thinking? He's got a strong interest in having you not replace him. Yeah, so you point. should be one of the passers-by. Yeah, you know who I think they should get you to be in the new Spider-Man, yeah, the Stan right. Lee cameo. Right. Why? Why not? True believers. <laughs> <laughs> why not have that played by someone else? Yeah. Why does it have to be Stan Lee? Why can't they get someone else to do the, the Stan Lee like cameo? like 92 now or something. Yeah. I think Marvel producers are just really waiting for him to die. What's your favourite Stan Lee cameo? Probably in The Amazing Spider-Man, where he's like the old man with the headphones on, and in the background the massive lizard is fighting Spider-Man. I think my favourite Stan Lee cameo is in uh, The Incredible Hulk, as a man who drinks some liquids and just smashes his glass. Yeah, and at the beginning, him and Lou Ferrino are security guards and they're leaving the building it's like you know there should be the security here and then like the Hulk breaks out oh yeah like wait what anyway. am I thinking of am I thinking, is that the same one there's definitely one where he drinks a thing and it, he gets drunk at the party in Age of Ultron yeah there's another one where he kind of drinks some evil juice from a fridge or something like that <laughs> I have no memory of this <laughs> and he like collapses I thought it was the Incredible Hulk but maybe not <laughs> maybe it's the Incredible Hulk um Oh, oh, right. There's two Hulks. There's two Hulks. And he's in both both the Hulks. So which in which one is it where he's the security guard? The, the, the Eric Hulk. Banner. So I think Ang it's Lee. the Incredible Hulk where he drinks evil God, juice. Yeah, this is great, right? This is so good. <laughs> yeah. That's what listeners really want, is a sort of aimless ramble about Stan Lee. Absolutely. Anyway, that may have been cut down. Yeah, I don't think anything that we just said is going to make it into the final edit of the podcast, so this will seem quite... Like an Casey, end. just in case what we've rambled about is unusable, we'll just cut to this bit right now. Wow! Anyway. <laughs> That's a good all-purpose segue. Wow! Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Thanks so much for listening. Next week is the sort of pre-Star Wars week, so we're going to be reviewing some interesting... Uh, slightly out of the mainstream movies. It's the films that the studios are releasing in order to set up audiences for Star Wars. We're going to release. We're going to release a film ourselves. We're going to review the Russian Woodpecker, which is a brilliant documentary which you can watch on iTunes right now. And also, we're reviewing Guy Madden's The Forbidden Room, which is really good and out next Friday and might only be playing for like one day. So go see it. Okay. This, this episode might be out. You know, after. You know, it's gone. It's gone. It might be too late. Yeah, I haven't seen either of those movies, but I'm going to have to, otherwise the review's going to be very Danny-dominated. I don't want that. You don't want to be dominated by Danny. You don't want a Danny-dominated review. Oh, yeah. All right, have a good weekend, everyone. So long. Go speed. When I first saw 2001, I didn't like it, and I was very disappointed. And, uh, And then... Three or four months later, I was with some woman in California, and she was telling me what a wonderful film it was, and and I went to see it again, and I liked it a lot more the second time I saw it. And then...
couple of years later, I saw it again, and I thought, gee, this is really a sensational movie. And it was one of the few times in my life that uh, I realized that the artist was much ahead of me. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.